Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Dario Valenza. Dario has one of the coolest, most unique companies I've ever come across. He's the founder of Carbonics, a company that builds unmanned aircrafts, working with large corporations, governments, the military. Dario turned a hobby into a market-leading business and shares his story from being a product expert to becoming a successful entrepreneur. We discuss topics that are relevant across all businesses. For example, how he turned his business into being independent from himself, you know, building a company that operates without you so you can work on the business, not in it. How using what you specialize in to find your niche and to focus on doing just that. And the importance of proving what you say. Having a great marketing statement is one thing, but showing people that you can actually do that is another. And in an industry like Darius, where drones and unmanned aircraft was new, him having to prove what they can do was an important element, something that we should all be doing more of, especially at the moment when this world is full of a lot of fake things. Darius is an incredibly intelligent guy. I hope you enjoy the show. You have one of the coolest um offices, or at least office environments, I don't know if I'd call it an office, office environments I've ever been to. Like I walked in your office, there's spaceships flying, there's <laughs> giant planes sitting around the place. I don't know what the people there are doing, but there's there's some whack stuff going on. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd call it a workshop. Um, we have a, a design area and a fabrication construction area, and we support flight operations out of there. So it's basically a, an operating base. So you call it the workshop. That's the that's the less dramatic way of describing it than what I did. <laughs> but anyway, welcome to the to the podcast, Dario. It's a pleasure to have you here. Obviously, um, have been to your office and, and know a fair bit about your operation. But I just think what you do is so cool. Like it's not it's very rare that I would come across a, a member that that um, uh, is the only member of that sword in the club. Yeah, you know, I'd imagine yeah. you'd be the only person in cub that is uh, how would you describe it uh, unmanned flight yeah i think specifically remotely piloted aircraft um it, i mean there's when you say drone that's a, a very broad term and and you can look at everything from a small multi-rotor that might be something you buy at, at the uh, jp uh, hi-fi uh to what we call prosumer which is which is a, a slightly larger version of that that might do uh, small vertical missions uh, around houses or um, you know stacks, um, and then you there's a whole spectrum to the large military aircraft that can fly for you know 24 hours and carry hundreds of kilos. Um, we, we fit in a very specific space, uh, which is long range um, infrastructure surveying, and you know the ethos behind that was was really. You know the, the why we're doing it. The, the vision of the business is providing better data, better information, uh, so that um, operators of infrastructure can make better decisions. So it's that principle that if you give um, people better data, better information, better insights into what's happening on the ground, um, they can do their job better. They can keep the lights on more efficiently, uh, keep the power transmission network going, um, look after security maintenance uh, in a way that's more efficient. And how does uh, how does one get into the industry of unmanned aircraft for data collection? Well, at the risk of sounding flippant, you create it. Uh, it it's something very new. Um, and it's really a confluence of different technologies. So we have uh, everything from the uh, autopilot uh, algorithms that are now able to uh, take very rapid feedback from onboard sensors and stabilize a platform. Uh, and, and some of that came out of uh, whether it's driverless cars or consumer electronics or, you know, gyroscopes out of mobile phones. Uh, and you combine that with very uh, energy-dense uh, batteries like lithium polymer, lithium ion that, that was really not available before. Um, and, and that sort of combination of those things. Now, what we brought to the table is a uh, carbon fiber composites capability, which is basically carbon fiber as a material. It's a, a lightweight uh, material that can be shaped to very organic, very curvy, uh, very aerodynamic shapes, um, very strong for its weight uh, with very uh, favorable properties in terms of flexibility and aerodynamic behavior. Um, and the tools required to design and manufacture that carbon fiber is really what enables us to uh, create the airframe, which is what keeps everything in the air, 
um, being so light and so efficient, it can cover long distances and hence it opens up the possibility of replacing what's conventionally a, a, a crewed aircraft or a helicopter, uh, which when you sort of think about the comparison, you're burning hundreds of kilos of fuel, uh, you're restricted in how low you can fly, uh, you're making a lot of noise on the ground, you're potentially endangering the pilots when conditions are adverse. Uh, and we replace all that with something that carries maybe like single-digit litres of fuel, uh, can do those long six, eight-hour missions and can carry a payload that's sophisticated enough, so again, heavy because it has to have the resolution uh, to scan a power line uh, within, you know, five, ten-millimeter resolution. So basically you've solved for a problem for larger companies. Well, I don't know if it's a problem, but you've made a better solution for large companies, governments, or you know, big organizations. Instead of sending a helicopter for a fly around the, you know, the fields or the, you know, if I was Telstra or something and you, I wanted to check all my power lines or if I was the government and I wanted to scan an area for floods or, exactly. or whatever it happened, instead of having to send the big expensive helicopter that's bad for the environment, uh, is expensive uh, to run, to buy, and also to pilot and all that type of stuff, you said, hey, we've got a much better pro the solution. It's cheaper. It's lightweight. You can move it around easily. Mm -hmm. It's better for the environment, and you could probably get more accurate data, and it's less offensive to the people around it and to the environment because it's not making the big bah, 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 bah noise and all that type of stuff. It's Absolutely it's, right. It's a sexy little machine that's that <laughs> moves through the sky seamlessly. Yeah, it's it's the minimum you need uh, to to do that that scan. Um, but, but but how did you get in? So, so my question before was not so much how does <laughs> how does one like me get into the industry and what what is required. It was more so how did you get into that industry? What what where did you start uh, in your career? Uh, in my career, I started in uh, boat building and yacht design. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time. Uh, building boats initially for around the world race, then into America's Cup. Uh, did that for as part of it, 12 years, just over a decade. Um, and I was exposed to uh, this, this technology development environment. So it's not just the tech per se, but the approach. So you have a very competitive arena um, and to make it work, you have to have the resources. So whether it's sponsorship or patronage or some means to fund it, uh, then with that funding you have to uh, do as much as possible in the available time before the race starts uh, to create something that has a higher performance than all the other teams are trying to do. And so um, you're talking about um, like sailing? Uh, yacht racing, yes. Yacht racing. And how old were you when you got into that? <laughs> uh, probably 12. <laughs> oh, you are. Oh, you, so you've yeah. been passionate about this really your whole, uh, absolutely. Your whole life. Is. Aerodynamics, carbon fibres. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and just to answer your earlier question, um, having been in that environment and seen uh, the technology that emerged from it, then the question is, can I do something with this that's more than just uh, you know people having fun and, and racing yachts? Is there a real-world problem that we can solve that this tech will enable? Uh, and the ethos was really, again, going back to uh, can we provide better insights and, and looking at um, the, the, the difficulty of, of getting uh, eye-in-the-sky type applications uh, again, through friends in aviation and, and having an interest in it being very parallel to sailing, um, I sort of put the two together and said, well, we can build uh, an airframe that, that can do uh, what is currently not possible with other technologies and the applications are long range eye in the sky. And to make it viable, to really be competitive, we can't just be a 10-minute, 20-minute, half-hour flight time. We have to look at you know two to six to eight hours eventually um, and be able to do it at scale. So produce them. Um, the, the comms piece is very important, uh, The what we call remote one-to-many, uh, being able to – It's again, it's great having an eight-hour flight time, but if your radio link is only 5K, uh, then you can't really use that range. So tell me that – so you've ta you took a hobby and turned it into a business, which I think <laughs> is really an important part of this story. Because it's something that you're saying people do for fun, yeah. And it was something that you were, I guess, doing for fun in the sense that you were you were loving, you loved boats, and you were designing them, building them. And I assume you were, you know, getting the sponsor involved in getting the sponsorships and and creating the sciences, putting together the teams. So you're already doing this. At, was it a job or a hobby? Kind of both. I think, to be honest, I've never made the distinction, <laughs> and that that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? And I've been learning recently about what that means um, in terms of separating your your hobby from your job. Um, well, I mean, I, if your if your job is your hobby, 
is the best of both worlds. It's like, what would you do if you weren't getting, if you weren't paid? You know, what would you do? I th- well, sounds like you'd object, do that. I'd be doing, this, doing the same thing. And, and that's, that's, again, both a good thing and a bad thing because eventually a, a business has to make money. So you have to look at it in terms of the business case and the profitability and the cost versus income and, and the value proposition and all that. Um, having been in the sailing world, obviously, that there's almost, um, you'd call it a, a post hoc justification where the way professional sailing, well, any professional sport really, if, if you talk to uh, someone who's a star basketball pra- player, presumably they used to play basketball because they loved it and they were good at it and they pursued it uh, and, and there's a value in the performance level that they reached and they monetize that. And that value could be uh, the inspiration to the spectators or the exposure to a brand that they wear. And so you go, if you're totally dedicated to something and you're doing it at a sufficiently high level, you're creating value. And then it's just about how do I monetize that? What, what, who will pay for it? And tell me about then your, um, your, like you obviously then said, okay, well, I want to turn this into a business. I think a lot of this science and skill set that I've learned from the boating mm. industry, it, it can cross into the drone space, I guess. Um, and how did you actually analyze the market? So did you know much about the drone space as it was or, um, or aerial space, whatever you'd call it? And what were the things you said, okay, well, how did you actually look at that market and go, where can we enter? Because it is a, like you said, it's a, it's quite a complex market. There's a lot of resource going to that industry yeah. as well. Uh, so at the time there probably wasn't, it wasn't, it, it hadn't sort of gone through that hype cycle that it's been through in the last sort of five, 10 years. Um, it was very much, um, you were just starting to see little multi-rotors. Uh, and again, very low cost, very simple tech, starting to become commoditized, really four motors and a bunch of sticks. Um, and people were starting to use them for fun, to film themselves mountain biking, to, to do sort of you know, any sort of extreme sport filming. Um, and people are starting to think, well, I can take aerial photographs of houses for real estate agents. Uh, I could potentially fly it up and down the beach and monitor if someone's drowning or if there's a shark nearby. Um, those were the initial thoughts and, and the whole industry was a little bit like that. Once um, we, we were into it and we started going to the first sort of conferences that were organized by the, the then new uh, Association for Uncrewed Systems, um, you, you really saw a bunch of cowboys. You saw those people with very out there ideas, uh, shoestringing stuff, really not sure what the, what the, what the business case would look like. Um, I really made the decision early on to uh, seek out uh, people who are have a complementary expertise to mine. So I knew I could make the aircraft work. Um, I knew I, I loved doing it. I understood it. I could make it happen. Uh, but I knew I needed help on the business side. Um, and so through, you know, initially hiring people uh, and then eventually getting buy-in from, from either those same people or investors, um, I got advice about how you go about um, identifying a market but the interesting thing was that the way the the first um, sort of drawing contract came about uh, was a, a tender that came came to us to to Carbonics through uh, a, actually a mate of mine who also used to be in the America's Cup who's set up a business in Spain doing computational fluid dynamics, uh, and he actually came across a, a government contract over there uh, for a custom airframe that was designed uh, to to carry a payload that the military over there wanted to fly. Uh, and so we looked at the tender and the, it was actually quite insightful because it said, we have this payload, it weighs this much, uh, has this much volume, requires this much power, um, we need to fly it for as long as possible and it has to fit in a box that will fit in the back of one of our armoured personnel carriers. Um, and so we went through the exercise of sketching an airframe around those constraints, uh, put a tender bid together, submitted it and we ended up winning it. Um, and so that contract actually funded uh, the whole initial build of, you know, the first molds, the first prototypes, the first sort of flying items. Uh, and that was really the, the learning curve to say, okay, this, we can get a feel for it this way and we can identify the main problems and we can see what the barriers are to then take this from a military technology to a commercial technology. And w- um, when did you start? So how, how long has Carbonics been operating uh, so for? So the company's just over 10 years old. Um, so that was 2012. Yeah, 2011, 2012. And you mentioned that, so you weren't obviously, uh, you felt like you needed support in the business aspect of things, but you were an expert in the, um, science or or, what's your trade? Like what's your study? (laughs) Um, 
basically composites, mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Yeah. So you were you were an expert in mechanical engineering. You knew you could build the plane, mm. but you wanted. Can I call it a plane? Yeah, it's yeah. A, we call okay. it a remotely piloted aircraft. Cool. Because it's call it a plane for more complicated for than just a drone. But, <laughs> but um, you knew you could build the plane, but you were looking for for a partner, I guess, or someone to run the biz or to to execute on the business side of things. The reason I want to stop on that is because that's a pretty common thing that uh, we come across, well, I come across in general when talking to business people. Some people are the businessy people and some people are the like experts in the whatever they do type people. Mm. And how how did you manage that? So did you, when you launched, did you have that business person there or did you launch and then have to find that person? Uh, the latter. So for the first, thinking back, probably three, four years, I was on my own. Um, I employed, uh, I think I got up to three, four uh, people to actually help to execute. So in the workshop building. Um, and, and we were, um, to hedge my bets, uh, the idea was, okay, we've got this tech. Um, I understand the marine sector. So I'm going to offer products and services into that sector as well uh, to sort of subsidize the, the pivot into the drones. Uh, so Was the, that just to, to, to generate some revenue to help Absolutely. Fuel the company. Uh, and, and it's a bit of a hedge, I guess. It's like, well, we, we, we know there are two potential applications. We know the drones is the ideal one and the one that can scale. Uh, but in the short term, uh, we can make it a business by, or I can make it a business by, by doing the, the boat stuff. Um, but that also allowed us to uh, implement the tech. So actually design plant around it that we could test by making boat parts um, as well as doing, doing the aircraft. Um, and then, yeah, it was a, a matter of, saying, okay, I, I, when it got to the point where, you know, I was writing grant applications, doing our R&D uh, tax uh, submission, uh, everything from taking out the rubbish to doing the admin to balancing the books, it got to a point where, you know, I, I do not have the time to do all of it. I don't particularly enjoy the businessy stuff. I'm probably doing it wrong because I don't know anything about it. Uh, so let's get some help. Um, and so that that was effectively looking to hire uh, CEO, CFO, uh, not necessarily with those titles initially, but just, you know, business admin person. Um, and then once that happened, they started telling me about, uh, you know, you can raise capital by selling shares, you can do this, you can do that. So that and, stuff wasn't yeah. on your mind at all? No, my idea was you build something, you sell it, you take that money, you reinvest it, you grow organically and uh, and again, on the marine side, that probably would have been a, a reasonable business. Um, but to do what we're doing now, it's very capital intensive. So to do all that um, R&D into a new airframe, new avionics, new operations, um, and all the stuff around it as well, dealing with, with CASA and sort of working with them and educating them about what we're doing and how the regulations should look. Uh, that all requires different specialisations. That there's no one person that can do it all. Sorry, what's CASA? Uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. Okay, yeah, and those guys are probably like if they're patrolling the skies, making sure everything's safe. They're probably like, who are these? <laughs> who are these guys sending you know unmanned aircrafts into the sky? And is this safe? Should we be allowing? The, do they cause you problems? Uh, <laughs> short answer is yes, but in a good way. I, I, I think they're. Um, We've, we've seen the change over time. So when we started doing this, there was no regulation. So we literally went out to a model airplane field and flew. Um, and, you know, there's a convenient interpretation, well, it's a model airplane. Um, reality is that it's a commercial autonomous aircraft, so it's not. And initially, you saw it in the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration in, in the US as well. Um, it was almost a, a blanket ban. It's like, no, you can't do this, go away. But they soon realized that it wasn't going to go away and they had to regulate it. Um, and so they, they took what they could from the relevant parts of the crude uh, aviation world uh, and obviously took out the bits about seat belts and cockpits and stuff that doesn't apply um, and, and really started coming up with a framework. And they came up with categories and, and there's quite a, a lot of science behind it in terms of you know, the initial research where they said, okay, we'll break it up into weight categories. So if, if a drone is under seven kilos, uh, obviously the damage it can do potentially is a lot less than a drone that weighs 100 kilos. So there's a slightly different way to assess the safety of that one versus a bigger one. Uh, and when you think about, um, you know, crude aircraft are generally designed to withstand a bird strike and a seven kilo drone is comparable in terms of mass and, and energy to, to a bird. So you treat it more along those lines. And then as you go bigger, 
Um, you, you need more redundancy, more reliability, sort of safety assurance, and you need pro processes and procedures around it to make sure that you're aware of the airspace, you have buffers, you have control over what's happening on the ground. Um, and and really it was building that relationship with CASA was important to, to differentiate what we are doing against what someone who might be building something in the nothing wrong with that, but, you know, in their garage at the weekend without all those processes and all that testing and R&D behind it and really making that distinction. And the added complexity was that initially you had multi-rotors and you had fixed wing. And fixed wing would take off from a runway or a catapult. Uh, you always have to have airspeed to fly. Um, we actually added a vertical takeoff and landing system because we saw that as the biggest uh, sort of practical barrier to using these things out in the field. So suddenly you had an aircraft that would, could behave like a multi-rotor and take off and land vertically and then get up to a certain point, transition and fly like a conventional aircraft. And so your planes, they're fixed wing. They've got the wings, but they can – so they go up like they, – they lift like a helicopter, but they fly like a plane. Correct. And that's unique in the industry. Uh, it's – Yes. It, it was, there, there maybe are, there's a few new players. There are a few. I mean, again, the concept of VTOL is, is not new. Um, like the V-22 Osprey and there are aircraft that, that can transition between the two modes. Uh, but there's always restrictions around it because you're uh, making some big compromises. Um, you're having additional motors, additional actuators, um, that the power requirement is vastly different. So doing it without losing the advantage of either is the challenge. And we were able to do it again. Thanks to our lightweight materials, uh, we can carry the VTOL and the penalty is relatively small, so we still get the range that we need. So, okay, so you've actually solved that problem by you by implementing some of the um, materials and things you know from the yachting industry. Mm -hmm. the, what, what did you call it, carbon fiber or whatever you're using? What are you using? Yeah, so the, we, we call it composites. So composite is just a material that's made up of two different elements. So like reinforced concrete is a composite. You've got the concrete and you've got the steel inside that gives it strength. So your yeah. composite is super lightweight, meaning that uh, you can have the heavier weight of the engine that needs to lift it, like let's just call it the propeller engine, the, the helicopter engine that lifts it. Yeah. But then because it flies on fixed wing, yeah. it's very uh, energy efficient because right. you don't need that much energy. You don't need energy lifting it. It's just kind of gliding. Yeah, look, a, a really oversimplified analogy is you can imagine the difference between sort of treading water and surfing. So when you're in VTOL, you're treading water, you're constantly having to direct air down to generate that lift. So you're, you're beating the air into submission and it takes a lot of energy. As soon as you're transitioning to horizontal, uh, you only need enough energy to maintain that airspeed to overcome drag and the wings are doing all the work. Uh, and wings are not the same as wings. So um, we have very, what we call high aspect ratio, so long skinny wings, uh, which are possible because our materials are strong so we can make them thin. Um, and so it actually looks more like a glider than, than say an airliner. Uh, and that gives it the efficiency. Yeah, can you describe the the actual planes themselves, like the bigger ones, I guess, because you probably have a few sizes. Uh, but how, how long, yeah. how big are they? Uh, so we have two models. Uh, one is all electric, carries one kilo, uh, and for for about two hours, and weighs about fifteen kilos overall. And it's about a four meter wingspan, three point six meters. Uh, so to basically fit in in this room barely. Uh, then the the long range one that carries sort of seven odd kilos for about six seven hours. Uh, is actually a petrol hybrid. So it has a little petrol motor that charges the batteries as it flies uh, and it's a six-metre wingspan and it weighs 55 kilos overall. And, and oh, 55 kilos is a pretty decent – it's a – It is. I mean, it's not a feather. No, yeah. it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite intimidating actually. It's, it's yeah. a fairly serious machine to be putting up in the air and expecting it to do its own thing. Um, and how long does that one fly for? Uh, six to eight hours. Which in the industry is, I assume, a substantial flight time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that the nearest competitor is more like two. Um, oh, okay. So <laughs> Big advantage. Uh, it's, it's the combination of, of flying for a long time and carrying a significant payload. So if you, if you imagine um, the resolution of a sensor is roughly proportional to its weight. So if you want to have a, a scanning LiDAR, for example, that has a powerful beam and that can resolve very fine features it tends to be a fairly chunky machine. Um, and so to carry that, uh, the size of the aircraft is really driven by that. You're saying, okay, my payload is seven kilos. Uh, I then have to add my comms, which might be two kilos for a satellite system. Uh, then I have all my propulsion to keep it all in the air. 
uh, and then I need enough fuel to do the flight time. So when you when you say seven kilo payload, two kilo lidar, uh, probably eight ten kilos of fuel, um, then everything else is built around that. That gives you how much wing area you need to stay in the air, uh, and that in turn gives you how much drag you have, which determines your propulsion, and you sort of keep iterating until you find a balance. Um, and you, you basically shrink wrap the smallest aircraft you can around all those requirements. Wow. And so how much do these things cost? Uh, yes. <laughs> the, the way we're, we're um, marketing them or, or commercializing them is, is really more as a service than as an outright sale. Uh, so initially we did sell units and um, anything from $150,000 to $250,000 uh, without a payload. So the payload can be another hundred grand on top of that. Sounds like a lot, but compared to... No, that's peanuts, that's peanuts compared to buying a helicopter um, and then having to pay for the pilot. Absolutely. And and again, the commercial stuff, I there are people who have more... Uh, they're closer to it than I am within the business that can tell you more detail. But the concept now is is really we found you can sell an aircraft to someone and then all you provide all the services around it. So we, we train the pilots, we do the maintenance, the upgrades, uh, help them get established, um, get the permits... Um, and it, it sort of became, it was a logical next step is just do it all for them. Because when you look at, again, someone like uh, uh, South Australia Power or an Osnet, they are used to picking up the phone, calling up a helicopter company and saying, hey, come and do this scan. And the next thing they know, they have a, a USB drive or a hard drive with, a, um, with the data. So we, rather than going through that whole process of selling their aircraft, uh, training them and all that, um, we can make it available to them and then it, it's an as-a-service model and but, that's recurring revenue for the business. And I think that's a really interesting uh, lesson. Like so you originally – it's just funny how your business isn't always what you think it's going to be. You know, <laughs> like you went in – you go in and you say, okay, we're going to sell these these planes to people. It's going to save them a lot of money and it's a better way of doing what they're already doing. Mm. But then you realise like sometimes the best thing to do to enter a market is to, to – uh, Keep make it as easy as possible for your customer to adopt Absolutely. a new, better product, and then yeah. you obviously realize, holy shit! Like you, maybe we're doing it wrong. Some people want to buy it, fair enough. But then if they buy it, they have to maintain it. They've got a warehouse that's somewhere. They've got, yeah. You know, what when this breaks, what do you do? But what if we just did exactly the same service they're getting now? But mm. again, we just did it with our product cheaper and better. Yeah, yeah. and and it's just going to be a lot easier for them. Like really, you're focusing on what's easiest for my client. Absolutely. You're taking all the friction away. And there's also an element of proving it to them because the, um, the value proposition is a no-brainer, right? You say, I, I can do this job uh, cheaper, better, you can fly more frequently, get, get better data, safer. Okay, great. Where do I sign? But then the reality of it is, you know, they need to be an expert in the capabilities and limitations of the aircraft, in operating them, in having all the procedures in place, in getting permits to fly them. All of that stuff. And, and again, it, for some businesses that makes sense. So, for example, for the miners, uh, they tend to have their own helicopter fleet. They tend to insource it because they, they need it so often and they're spending so much money on it and it's so specialised. Uh, and so it may very well be that they will continue. Again, they won't necessarily outright purchase the aircraft, but they'll, they'll lease it and they'll have it on site and they'll fly it with their own uh, personnel. Uh, but uh, the vast majority, again, in the en energy sector and you know, government, national parks, things like that, um, they, I think, are much more comfortable with someone just coming and doing it for them. Uh, and that, from a business point of view, means we're capturing more of the value because we're doing all of the horizontals rather than just one vertical and we don't become someone else's supplier. Um, but it also means that we can contract out to specialised operators who um, may, again, either purchase or lease the aircraft and then go and operate it for us. Uh, and that's all still pretty fluid because it's a fairly new industry. So um, that level of specialization is emerging at the moment. So th there are companies um, that started out being drone operators that have since specialized in being like regulatory advisors. And that's all they do now. They, they, they help drone companies and operators comply with regulations and get the permits and uh, procedures in place. Uh, similarly, there are others who used to build drones and now just offer the post-processing or uh, one particular element of say the ground control points. Uh, so that speciation, once you find the thing that you're really good at, you just narrow it down to just doing that. Um, we, we went through a little bit of that with having a fairly agnostic platform to begin with that you could carry different sensors on and do different missions. 
Um, and we really had to proceed by elimination and say, yes, we could be doing some obscure mission for a university somewhere that requires a one-off payload that only they're interested in. But that doesn't really make sense because we could go over here and, and build an aircraft that can service a thousand customers and scale that way. Um, and so that, you know, being able to say no and being able to focus is really critical. I think what's, yeah, what's important is, and what sounds like it happened in the industry is that people, and, and it's relevant to all businesses and all industries is, well, sometimes the best thing you can do is really focus on what, you know, on your niche, focus on mm. you, what you are best at, what you specialize at. And there might be some other people who specialize at the same thing, but there's much fewer people that you then you might be competing with three people as mm. opposed to a hundred people in, in drones, for example. Yeah. Um, and as a business owner, sometimes you could ask yourself a question is like, what do you specialize in? You know, CUB, okay, well, we specialize in networking or building relationships between business owners. Yeah, okay, but what's what's up there? Well, we specialize in, in doing it for uh, accomplished, established business owners. And what's further than that? Well, to do it for them like that, this is what we're, you know, it's mm. kind of like well, how do you just zone in on your area? Yeah. And so, and see, this is also interesting because it really is you navigating this new industry and finding the business model and this area of specialty that, that works for you yeah. personally as, as an entrepreneur. Well, I, I can give you some, some fantastic examples even yeah, around please. the tech. As, as the, the ecosystem evolved, um, we obviously, we had an airframe. Uh, we needed effectively an autopilot. We needed the electronics to make it work. Um, and you couldn't buy anything like that at the time. This is only six, seven years ago. Um, you could buy hobby stuff that sort of came out of somewhere, someone's garage, a factory somewhere, didn't have any certification testing. You might get 10 units in and six of them might be defective. Um, you don't have that consistency. And we really wanted that sort of aviation standard to be able to show that everything we have on the aircraft is quality assured, it's made to some sort of standard, it's tested and validated and it's going to work. Um, and then you had, again, this big gap and then you had the military stuff, which was really hard to get expensive and tended to be big and heavy for what we needed. Um, and so we, a lot of the avionics in the aircraft we had to develop from scratch. Um, but over time, uh, there were some of these hobby suppliers and there's, there's, there's one in, in Australia in particular that I'm thinking of, Pilot. Um, they actually developed to the point where they got their ISO certification, they got a, one of their autopilots certified, um, they, they, they got to the level of quality required to become a supplier to our level of commercial drone manufacturers. And at some point, you, well, not at some point, continuously you're looking and you're going, what do I have to do myself and what can I buy in? What do I have to do myself? What can I contract out? And, you know, you need to along the way know that you have the quality, you have reliability of supplies, you have alternative supplies in place but you're constantly reevaluating that because you're going, oh, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I can buy this thing. It does the job. Um, but, you know, yesterday that thing may not have existed. Um, and so honing into, you know, where am I adding the real value? And even in terms of building the airframes, like we're at the point now where we're, we're outsourcing the, the manufacturing of the carbon fiber at scale uh, because we're good at prototyping, we're good at developing, we're good at uh, that keeping ahead of the competition at fixing, tinkering, making sort of the low volume stuff when it gets to high volume it's a different skill set it's it's a different approach different kind of guys so you outsource to people who specialize in that skill set exactly and and specifically to a company called quickstep which is a, a listed uh, defense supplier here in australia that, that um specializes in advanced composites uh and and again they came on board as a shareholder a couple of years ago uh, we have a really good relationship with them in terms of effectively we get to a point where we have a production prototype we've built in the order of 40 or 50 of a particular aircraft and then we hand it over and then they can dial up the volume as required and then we know that they're going to turn up uh, when agreed to the quality of the, the, that's required and we can just – we don't have to build a plant and hire the people to do that. And a very strategic shareholder with a vested interest in in your yeah. company with, 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 with a benefit to it. So you, you got the um, – yeah, so you, originally you had never even thought about uh, uh, raising capital. <laughs> you found, a, a, I guess, a business partner in the sense a, a CEO of the type mm. to to kind of focus on that element of the business so you could keep focusing on the technology, mm. your area of specialty. How quickly did you realise, okay, wow, we're gonna, this is capital intensive. We want to stop doing the boat stuff. We want to move fully to um, the planes. Mm. 
Um, how quickly did you uh, decide, okay, let's raise capital? Um, and how did you go about that? It was about five years in. Um, and again, those first few years were you know, playing with boats, building prototypes, getting the airframe sorted, doing that contract for the Spanish um, uh, uh, military. So then it became, okay, we want to do this commercially. There's all this work to do around the, the, the stuff that goes around the aircraft and, and the quicker we do it, the quicker we can be first to market effectively. Um, and it was, yeah, again, just going to our net, to my network, to, to people I knew um, through you know, social stuff. I, I do a lot of uh, driving, car clubs, things like that. Um, and people putting me in touch with people and you go and talk to them and you get their view and their opinion and um, basically got um, someone to advise on preparing for that. So, you know, presenting the business correctly, tidying up all the, the back end, um, the governance, making sure that it's uh, fit for an investor. Um, and then, yeah, we were fortunate enough to find people who saw what we'd already done. And I think that's really critical, having a product that it's out there, it's flying. Uh, we, we, we'd already done uh, missions for customers, sort of early adopter type things with uh, big names like Hitachi, Fujitsu, um, so you kind of, would you say you found your kind of product market fit in the sense like you found a market yeah. who valued your product and they had they had already shown interest that no we want to use this like we're interested in in working with you uh, absolutely and and it was it's really about okay this is interesting come and show us and then they saw it and they saw the data and they went okay this could be something but they weren't ready to buy and we weren't ready to supply it was really that very early. Um, almost joking about the planes held together with duct tape and bubble gum, like it, um, just something that could prove the concept, that could fly, uh, get up there, get the data, show them how it all works, uh, show CASA that it's something that can work. Um, and then we're like, okay, we'll, we'll see you in two years' time when we're ready to supply it. But it, it was already showing that the potential is there. Like the, just the idea of you know putting a camera up above a piece of infrastructure and keeping it up there for two hours, that's pretty unique and it, it gives you a pretty uh, new perspective over what was happening on the ground. But I think it's really cool how you went out kind of to market earlier than you're even ready to kind of provide it as a business because you're building those relationships. Hmm. You know, you're, you're saying, hi, I'm Dario, like this is what we're doing. And I just want to show you it's you, we're going to be here in a few years and we'd yeah. love to just – have a relationship, start talking in the sense, obviously you didn't do it as lame as that, but <laughs> but you get what I mean? Sometimes it's best to actually start building relationships with people that you're going to work with in the mm. future or could work with in the future long before mm. um, uh, long before you actually can do so. Yeah. And the other thing is in a space, no one believes anything these days, first of all. Like you can hear <laughs> anything on the – like, and now you've got fake voices, fake videos, fake photos, fake like, – and people talk a lot of shit. There's a lot of fake. And um, this is real, right? Yes, this is real. (laughs) Yeah, this is not a fake. (laughs) Believe me, we're not, we're getting into tech, but we're not a tech. (laughs) But I don't know anything about it. Um, Anyway, yeah, no, people don't believe anything. You have to prove things these days. And people don't believe normal things like, hey, we're going to get you an ROI of, you know, five times your money. They won't even believe that. You're saying like, hey, you know, we're going to send an unmanned spacecraft into the sky for cheaper than currently costing you and we're going to give you far superior data and we're actually a legit company and, you know, forget us about us being new. We can actually do this. You can rely on us and we're working. You're not just working with like Cub. You're working with like the government. You know, they have to they have to trust that you're going to do risk the job. Yeah, yeah, they're risk averse, yeah. big, big yeah. companies. Yeah. And so proof for you is huge. And and I just think proof for everybody is huge. You know, it's not, there's one thing is like what you say, which could be like your marketing. It's kind of like this, is what you say, and this might get their attention. But the next thing is like, okay, well, I don't believe you. Like I, I'm interested, mm. but I don't believe necessarily that you could achieve that. So then the next thing companies need to look at um, is, okay, well, how do I prove that I actually can achieve that? Or I, I prove that this is good before we get in bed. And I think that um, these days, because there is a lot of fake and a lot of talk, a lot of company, a lot of people want proof before they buy. Um, and that sounds like, I mean, that's relevant to all businesses. So a question to ask yourself is how can I, you know, what's my statement that I could 
propose? Mm. And what is then how can I prove that I can actually do that before mm. you even commit? So then you commit. And that was really the system that you had to work out, wasn't it? It's absolutely right. And I'd say it's actually worse than that because we were in a space where the hype was growing day by day. So we went to customers who had realized like they might have had a digital transformation officer or that they said, okay, we have a budget for this kind of uh, innovative tech, uh, you know, mining and energy, there's plenty of that. Uh, they might have put out a tender saying, you know, we want a drone that can do, you know, 5K of power lines of this resolution, whatever it might be. Uh, and that was either we weren't ready to bid or we didn't know about it, we weren't part of that. Um, and they might have down-selected to three, four suppliers and then they brought them out to do a fly-off and, you know, one couldn't get off the ground, one crashed, one didn't get the, um, the, the actual resolution that they needed and the value proposition was always these sort of short hops where you're, you're effectively tethered, uh, figuratively speaking, to the ground control station. And so when we come along and say, look, we've got this uh, capability and, you know, it works in my head and I've proven it on, on our field and why wouldn't you believe us? Uh, and they didn't. They're like, you come out to our site, do a flight, show us how it works. Um, and as a as the tech guy, there was that reluctance on my side where it's like, I don't want to put my baby out there when it's not polished and ready and 100%. So, um, But again, having come from that sort of America's Cup world mentality, the, there is this immovable fact that the race is on Sunday. You can't, you can get more money, you can't get more time. Um, and when you're building a one-off, that's fine. Like you're building something, you put all your energy, all your testing into making sure it works. You go out, you do your thing, and then if it falls apart the next day, it doesn't matter. Um, and so at that point, that was fine. We, we could go out and do those proof of concepts. And, you know, we did missions for, as I say, like Hitachi, Fujitsu, a few others. Um, and at that point, it's like, okay, we've, we've shown you that it works. Uh, you like it, that's great. You want to buy one. But, you know, it'll be a while until we get it good enough that we can hand it over. <laughs> we'll we'll <laughs> um, get it to you in two yeah. years. Well, exactly. And, and, and we've, we've, I mean, in all honesty, like we, we underestimated that. It did take us longer because um, a couple of times we went back to the drawing board where we said, okay, we, we've gone down this path with this particular avionics, uh, say using a particular signaling system within the RS-232 rather than CAN, for example. Um, and then we went back and said, well, that's actually given us some limitations and there are some interference things and that there's like, it's fine, but it could be better. Let's make that hard call now. Let's move on to the next protocol or the better idea now that we know how it works. Uh, and if that means spending another six months before we go to market, let's do that now rather than put stuff out there that is subpar and we don't have to uh, upgrade later. I would um, imagine that your investors, how, how many investors do you have? At the uh, moment. Handful. <laughs> okay. And how many rounds have you done? Uh, just the one, really. Okay, so you've yeah. done one round of, yeah. of, 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 of to, to raise yeah. capital. It was sort of the, the very early seed and then there was a, 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 a proper round. Seed, yeah. I would imagine your investors would be wanting a, a fair bit of communication with your type of company because there would be so much, you know, so, so much, um, I guess, to stay on top of technology mm. upgrades new contracts we're working on, mm. things like that. How do you keep them How do you keep them in the loop? Is that your responsibility or is that the responsibility of the business kind of head? Uh, it's really the CEO. Um, again, I have conversations with them unofficially, but then they get a, a report and um, a couple of the, the two, the three major ones are actually on the board. Um, and again, that's by design, right? We, we want their input. We want their advice. We want them to see what's happening and, and help us, you know, solve problems and give us direction. And, um, and so that, that the board works really well. Now we have a, a myself, the three major investors and an independent chair. Uh, and, and we meet regularly every month. We see what's happened. We, we look at what's, what we're expecting to happen in the next month. Um, and, and there's a real variety of perspectives around there as well, because again, I come, a, come, come to it from a very technical side. Uh, one of the major investors was a CTO of a tech company that he exited successfully, uh, and then the others are commercial. So, um, they, so they the board that, ha having their seats on the board has created that constant communication uh, and input from your investors. So they're they're in the loop constantly with what's going on. Uh, yeah, and again, they're not necessarily active, but they're, they're, we can bounce the ideas off them, and yeah, they know what's happening and they they see the progress. Um, keeps them really yeah happy with it. <laughs> and your company operates very independent, 
independent of you now in a sense as a company. It's not wholly reliant on you. Um, um, how how did you make that? How did you make that possible? Because you know that's a lot of people's dreams. Have my company operate without me having to be there to do everything. Yeah. How did you get to that stage? Uh, long and painful process. <laughs> of course. Um, but what were the steps? It's very deliberate. It's really uh, a not wanting to be the bottleneck. Um, making sure that um, the skills are there uh, to to execute without having everything having to come through me. Um, and really making sure that that culture is in place. So, so really working on, um, you know, the, the values and, again, with the CEO, with the board, um, making that very front and centre so anyone involved in the company knows what we're about, knows what we're trying to do, knows what's expected, uh, knows that, you know, quality, customer service and the, the whole the innovation ethos, the safety culture, uh, and then that helps align everyone. Uh, and then bringing in people, you know, we have a, a couple of other ex-America's Cup guys. We have people from aerospace. We have uh, uh, software people that have come out of startups that, that know that pace and that environment. Uh, and, and on the sales side, we have a really good head of product, really good sales guy. Uh, and the workshop runs itself. Um, so it really puts those skills in place in a way that they can, they have the autonomy to make those decisions, but they're aligned in terms of value. So we all know what we're trying to achieve. Everyone knows what their role is. Uh, and there's a lot of cross-pollination. We're physically all under one roof. Uh, so the software guy is sitting next to the hardware guy, the mechanical person is sitting next to – that they can literally walk into the next room. And as you say, as you said at the, at the beginning, that the workshop is there, the stuff is being built. Uh, so you don't have a designer sitting remotely somewhere that doesn't have a direct connection with the thing that they're designing. Uh, and so keeping that all really tight, keeping it aligned, uh, having those skills there, um, and then that frees me up to do this sort of thing to to tell Come the world, <laughs> tell tell the world what we're doing. Uh, again, talk to potential suppliers, strategic um, uh, customers, investors. Uh, and Work on the business, not in the business. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very much the stage you're at. So basically, to work on the business, you get the right people. You've got to put them in the right place mm. under the same vision and you've got to give them the autonomy and freedom to actually do their their job mm. and ideally have a very collaborative environment with all of them being together and all of them creating that culture and, and that thing. Yeah. That's, that's, and that, that's Like again, personally, you say I don't want them to do things – I mean I'd like them to do things exactly how I would but that's not realistic it's, as long as it achieves the, the outcome um, – and, and it's focused in the right direction and it conforms with the values and it, it keeps our brand uh, integrity, uh, then then you, you do get out of the way because you, you don't – like I've, I've also been told and realised that, you know, as the founder when you're sitting in on a design review or on a strategic meeting, uh, I might make a suggestion and it, it might sort of carry disproportionate weight because it's coming from me. So, so having that awareness of saying, well – you know, you guys own this, you guys are, are invested. And, and, and again, there's also elements of how you motivate your, your staff, not just from a values point of view, but also things like ESOP, um, things like being able to allow them to have professional development, so help them to do courses to keep improving themselves. Uh, a lot of social activities having, you know, every Friday we basically have a communal lunch and we just all catch up informally. Um, really keeping that culture going, keeping them empowered um, and, and letting them do their thing. And yeah, and, and it's quite touching, I guess, as a founder to go from, you know, this didn't exist to oh, a few people thought this might be worth helping with to now people are invested to the point where they're giving their working life to, to making this happen. And it's, it's fantastic. It's really nice to see that transition because that takes time. Like <laughs> when people join a company, I always tell the team like, new people will join the team, they're not really part of the team yet. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they're just, they really are just, they, they're just new. They, they are just at that point doing a role. When you see them flick the switch where they become, they have almost a sense of ownership over what we're doing, the company, they, they become passionate. It becomes something that, that, that they can see is aligned with them, that it's pushing mm -hmm. them forwards. You see that fire mm -hmm. uh, in their eyes. It is a really special that I can relate to that, Jermaine. But that takes time. And and in, in, time. In, in all businesses, but 
specifically in our case, it's hard. Like the stuff that we're doing, um, I have a pile of plaques on my desk from the, the ID plates of all the aircraft we've crashed and, and there's a lot of them. And, and we do it in a safe environment. We do it in, in a flight testing uh, situation where we know that if something goes wrong, the, there's, there's safety measures in place. But we have crashed a lot of aircraft and, and that's part of the journey. And, and it breaks people's heart where they, they, they might have spent, you know, three weeks building this thing, putting it together, tuning it, testing it, and then it comes back in pieces. And, and you've got to keep going. And having that, that approach, that ethos, that resilience, that toughness, uh, to, to keep keep pushing, to solve problems, to try and meet deadlines, even if it means long hours, if it means doing, going above and beyond. Um, it's not for everyone. It's not everyone's cup of tea. And we, we, there's a lot of filtering that happens with people that, that join because they think it's really cool and they realize, yeah, it's cool, but it's really tough. It's hard work. <laughs> and, yeah. and they might cycle through. But the, the eventually you get to a core group and our retention is actually pretty good now. Um they're really invested. They're really uh, making it happen, and and to watch that is is really amazing. Good on you. I, I like I said, you're the only person in Cub that that does this, and that just, <laughs> it's just there's a lot of people in Cub, so it shows how special what you're doing is, and and not just that that you know you're dealing with a lot of new challenges. I, I'm assuming when you're sitting with other Cub members talking about your business. Yeah, you, you'll have a lot of different challenges than, than – well, actually, a lot of them could be same. For example, proving your product, becoming independent of your company, uh, putting, you find the right people, putting them in the right place, um, um, uh, investors, raising capital. So um, business has crossovers. Anyway, we do have to wrap up. Uh, to our amazing listeners, if you want to get in contact with Dario, you can go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you can find uh, more information there. You can get in contact with him. You can get his book recommendations, greatest lessons in business quotes, and that of all of our other incredible podcast guests. Plus, if you want to catch up with Cub on social, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. It's awesome. We've fully updated it lately, so it's even better now. Um, and Dario, thank you so much, my friend. I, I, uh, obviously love having you as a member of Cub and, and very grateful for your time on the podcast today. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Hope you enjoy the show.